0: Hey there, I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a professional who wants to have a greater impact in the lives of children and families by building resilience, this podcast is for you. Join us to become a trauma informed champion by nurturing connections through relational health to help kids and families thrive. Every time you join me, you'll hear practical information and leave with tangible tools you can use every day. Hey friends, I am so excited today. I am joined by a special guest and my friend, Robin Goble. Um, Robin uh, is a social worker by training, but she now hosts and trains and consults and writes and does all the things um, to helpers and teachers and um, just hundreds of people on her online platform. And when you're lucky in person, she is the host of the very popular podcast, The Baffling Behavior Show, which we're gonna talk about. And she has a club for parents and other professionals, as well as a licensing program that you should all check out called Being With. Robin is a self-proclaimed relational neuroscience nerd uh, for helpers and healers and educators and parents. And the best part about her is that you'll listen and you will hear practical, useful, and ultimately life-changing tools. She teaches incredible tools and help for um, to help you understand children's behavior and ultimately their connection to themselves and to the adults in their lives. So hi, Robin.
1: Thank you, Amy. That was just a gorgeous introduction.
0: <laughs> well, I've known you well enough now to just yeah. know what a like superstar you are.
1: Well, I'm delighted to be here with you today and just get to, you know, anytime we can be deliberate about carving out time to spend together is fantastic.
0: I agree. I agree. Anything you want to add about what you're up to right now to your uh, non-traditional bio that I just read?
1: Well, what I'm up to right now is trying to publish a book Mm -hmm. while not going bananas. Yes. And like we just talked about, you know, spending as much time as possible with my teen who's a senior in high school. And I'm just very aware of him being a senior in high school. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, here's to being intentional about our time with family.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad I have that option.
0: Yep. Agreed. Um,
1: Um,
0: Well, I mean, you mentioned the book, so let's like start with the book. Tell us like what's the title of the book. And when this episode airs, people will know it's coming where it's first of October right now as people are listening. And so tell us about your book and tell us where people can get it and all the things.
1: The book is called Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, Brain-Body Sensory Strategies That Really Work. It's the world's longest book title. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I set out to write this book a couple, I can't believe it, but a couple years ago now because, well, at that point we were like heavy in the pandemic, right? And With kind of no concept of when is this ever going to end? When are we going to be back to normal? When are we going to be back to, you know, being with each other? And I was watching this community of parents that I've been supporting for decades parents of kids with kids with histories of complex trauma, vulnerable nervous systems, attachment trauma. You know, like they're drowning enough. (laughs) And then holy smokes, if the pandemic didn't just, for most of them at least, really exacerbate this crisis of living with kids who have so much vulnerability in their nervous system and then that their behaviors are just really, really hard to be with. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as you and I both are continuously doing, just looking at like, where's the gaps? What do people need? Mm-hmm. How can I be more efficient at helping more people? Because there's just not enough. I mean, we hear this constantly, right? From professionals, but also from the parents who are seeking services that like, nobody can help us. Nobody knows how to help us. We keep going looking for resources and we keep getting the doors slammed. So I was seeing this kind of uh, concurrent might not be the right vocabulary word there, but this problem of not enough professionals who know how to support these families, like have the confidence to work with these most dysregulated families, Mm -hmm. as well as are supported enough to do this work long term, Yep. Right. I think there's this like both parts of the problem. Not enough people know what to do. But then, even the ones who do know what to do, they're not supported long enough and they quit because this is such exhausting work. Mm-hmm. So, it is a parenting book, but I really wrote it with both parents and professionals in mind, which I think, you know, mirrors the work that I do just in general of how can I directly support parents but how can I also help professionals feel more equipped so there's more of them that that parents can go to and also how do I help strengthen their nervous system so that they can do this really hard work as long as they want to
0: yeah 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 so, and the book really has kind of a conversational tone to it, right? So the, it does. Yeah. Say more about that.
1: I really wanted to write a book that wasn't just another parenting book. Like, I did not want to just give more noise mm-hmm. out into the universe. And I wanted to write something that had the potential, at least, to impact people long-term, right? Like we've all read lots of self-help books, whether it be parenting or relationship or something. And it's like, we're so motivated and jazzed by it. We're like, this is so great. I'm going to do this. And then like a week later, it's just back to regular life. It's just not very sticky. And so I really kind of tried to lean into my understanding of relational neuroscience and the brain and how the brain changes and learning and not just learning, but then like integrating and implementing especially when we're stressed and thought is there any way I can do what I do with people like in the therapy room is there any way that that could happen in a book yeah. with someone I never meet mm-hmm. so it's kind of an experiment I don't know if I accomplish it or not but People are liking it so far. And instead of vignettes, although there are vignettes like sprinkled throughout the book, of course, to like help make the information applicable, but instead of relying on just, you know, a thousand different, you know, case examples, I created a character. Mm -hmm. And so there's a fiction story that's weaved into this nonfiction book of a mom, Nat, Mm-hmm. who comes to me for support for her kid Sammy and the book every chapter opens with a session mm-hmm. and over the course of the book we watch like this year of um you know progressive work um, yes mm-hmm. and i wrote it in first person so i I narrate my own little dialogue, my own inner dialogue and connect with this character Nat using words like you. Mm -hmm. So the reader, my hope is that the reader Mm -hmm. gets the sensation of me and them like really being in a connected relationship with each other. So far, early readers are saying that that's their experience, which is fantastic because I really believe like, that's how like real change can happen
0: it's in the brain. Yeah. 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 So if you are an educator, a helper, a healer, a parent who's working with kids with complex behaviors, this book is really affirming it really is a space where you can learn more about yourself and kids with tough behaviors. And for this, you know, podcast month, we are talking about kids, you know, that are hard to connect with sometimes. And really people that are familiar with my work and listen to the podcast know that like the number one thing that I think mitigates stress and trauma is connection. Yeah. And yet sometimes there are kids that are just hard to connect with, Robin.
1: Yes, and absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Um, will you just first define what you mean by relational neuroscience,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how that helps us understand connection?
1: Relational neuroscience is sort of the overarching global language for um the study of the neuroscience of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human. So obviously the brain does all sorts of things I know absolutely nothing about. I'm a social worker, but I am (laughs) very curious about the relational, social, and behavioral way that the brain develops and um, seeks relationship and receives relationship and is, you know, underneath behavior.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I work, I've always worked, pretty exclusively worked with kids with complex attachment trauma. And so I've always worked with kids who have behavior that is extremely bizarre, mm-hmm. um, but behavior that would be really easy to say, like, it absolutely makes no sense. Um, it is hurtful, harmful. It's rejecting of all connection. These kids don't want to be connected to anybody. Mm-hmm. And it was super early in my career, I found myself truly walking away from the off, the an outpatient mental health office with a black eye Mm
2: -hmm. from
1: a child who wasn't actually overtly aggressive. She was just extremely dysregulated and I didn't know what to do with that and created more dysregulation unintentionally. Mm -hmm. And I walked away from that with like, well. I have no idea what I'm doing and I've got to figure it out because there's no other place to send this kid. Like as it was, everyone was sending them to me. (laughs) Yeah, There's no options here. I have nowhere else to send this kid. Like if I can't figure out how to help this family, who's going to? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I found initially the work of Dr. Dan Siegel, interpersonal neurobiology. uh, And then that kind of opened the door to these other fields of study that now are kind of grouped together in this umbrella of relational neuroscience. So polyvagal theory, attachment theory, the neurosequential model of thera- therapeutics, um, lots of, again, these kind of theories of being relationally, socially, behaviorally human, but that are grounded in the science of the brain and the nervous system. And that started to then give me a map. It, It didn't tell me what to do, and it still doesn't exactly tell me what to do. That's not really the point of relational neuroscience. For me, it gave me a map to kind of understand what was happening in the nervous system and in the relational space between these two individuals. Then that allowed me to kind of turn to other places to look for tools that seemed like they might make sense. Yeah.
0: So if you're listening right now and you're an educator who's been in that space where you've got a kid who's just acting out and aggressive, or if you're a pediatrician and you're like, I do not know what to do with this. One of the first things is is to know, A, you're not alone in that. There are kids that are just really tough and complex. And B, that there is a map of understanding how and why kids come into this space. And Um, ways that we can begin to understand what's behind the behavior. Yes. Um, Would you agree, Robin? I mean, I know personally I'm hearing more complexity than I've ever heard before. Would you agree that behavior is more complex than we've seen it, especially kind of this, if we want to call it post-COVID world?
1: That's hard for me to have perspective on because I've always Mm -hmm. worked clinically with kids with you know, devastating attachment trauma. I do think I would say anecdotally that my other colleagues are describing how these behaviors that have kind of always fallen in the this child, you know, has a quote unquote really big problem. Like they've, they've got this big traumatic past. They have this attachment trauma that the behaviors that we've always sort of, you know, come to understand was a part of those kids is becoming a little bit more, I guess you could say mainstream mm-hmm. that these confusing and these baffling behaviors aren't just being seen in kids with the kind of intensity of, of trauma and past that we, you know, had always, conceptualize them as we're seeing them we're seeing this more and more in places that we would say are more typical
0: yep yep so so help um listeners by telling us a little bit of a story maybe so um it's october and maybe this child who previously wasn't presenting or looking um complex in your classroom now is suddenly you know hard to redirect and acting out and being aggressive and, um, feeling really energetically depleting for this educator, or maybe you're a pediatrician and you're hearing about this from the parent for the, you know, like, gosh, school is really horrible. And I'm hearing every day about how, you know, quote unquote bad my kid is. Um, and I'm not liking my kid a lot. Will you just tell us a story, Robin, about how we want to start to look at this behavior a little bit differently?
1: I have three grounding core tenets that are taken from the science of like the relational neuroscience. So the first one is behavior is just an uh, externalization of their inner experience. It's just giving me information about what's happening on the inside. The second one is that connection is A biological imperative is something we need to survive, and it's part of how we do survive. The third one is that regulated, connected kids who feel safe are doing well. Mm -hmm. So all those things kind of come together to do what I consider the most important kind of quote-unquote technique or tool in my toolbox, which is shifts how I'm seeing this person or this child, mm-hmm. changes how I'm interpreting their behavior. So instead of a child who's... um being difficult because they just want to be in control of the classroom, or they're just manipulative, or they're work avoidant, or they just are oppositional, whatever. I'm not going to argue. All of that's true. Those are accurate descriptions of the, that child's behavior, without question. But that's not the end point, right? The, the next thing is, okay, but Why? Right. If we know connection's a biological imperative, and this child is clearly behaving in a way that's not inviting us to want to be in connection with it. Right. Like I'm irritated, frustrated, pissed off, annoyed. Just want this child to go away. Like, wish they would never come back to school again. Not no shade on those thoughts. I've had them myself about kids in my therapy office. Like, I think we all should be brave and bold and be honest about the thoughts that we're having about the difficult, you know, kids that we come into contact with. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I'm thinking those things, I can go to the next piece, which is, ah, something must be off here. Mm -hmm. Because kids actually need grownups in order to be alive. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It makes no biological sense at all for kids to be behaving in ways that are making the grownups want, not want to have anything to do with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I always want to validate like, hey, that reaction you're having to the child, that's like, get away from me. I wish the child wouldn't even come to school or come to my office, whatever, normal. Like I'm not going to gaslight anybody and saying anything different except those are normal thoughts. It makes perfect sense you feel that way.
0: It's okay for me to not like this kid, to feel miserable totally. with the in my day, to have like energetic depletion. Okay. And yeah. then-
1: And then when we can be regulated enough, when we have enough resilience ourselves and we have enough support ourselves, there's space for the next question to go, but why? Mm -hmm. And that space opens up so many possibilities. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It opens up, if at the very least it opens up like our curiosity tends to lead us back into compassion Mm -hmm. For Mm -hmm. ourselves, first of all, because this is a miserable way to work.
2: Yeah,
1: And it's also miserable to feel like you have no idea what to do. And I really get that most professionals have no idea what to do with this kid. Nobody's ever taught them, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Um, And then it can eventually start to open us up for compassion for this child, which does not mean that we excuse or tolerate their behavior. Mm -hmm. But if we can move into compassion, passion for the child that actually, even though it doesn't feel like an intervention, it actually is the most important Mm -hmm. intervention.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So if we're even more kind of sticky with this, Robin, and we've got this teacher who's saying this kid is acting out completely dysregulated in my classroom, Um, what would be a couple of examples of your first tenant, which is Behavior is simply information. How might we look at that differently?
1: So I would first look at, I would ask myself, is this, I'll also preface this, I am not an educator. <laughs> I like children one at a time.
0: It's so- 100%. Can I just validate that for a second, Robin? I was at a family camp and I was in charge of 12 children at one point, and I was so neurotically like counting the children. So for all of you that have like 27, 32, however many kids in your classroom, Robin and I have a lot of sympathy and empathy for you.
1: And awe. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So whenever I get the opportunity, the privilege to be in front of an educator, I'd like to make that so clear. I understand the theory. Mm -hmm. I can help you reframe this child's behavior, Mm -hmm. I really can't exactly tell an educator what to do with that information because I like children one at a time. Yep. I only have one child in my house. I was a therapist. <laughs> I worked with them one-on-one. I don't even really like to run groups of children. <laughs> um, it's just not a skill that I have. That said, I feel good about offering the theory to educators because I know other folks have been very successful at taking the theory and implementing it into the educational setting, and so I feel good that it does work. It's just that I can't be the person that exactly tells you, like, here's how you take the information and implement it with thirty children. What I can speak to is if I'm in front of one child, thirty child, thirty children, however many, and their behaviors are out of control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just out of control, maybe even bordering on dangerous, but certainly not conducive to the goals that we have for that moment, which is like math class or something. The very first thing I want to try so hard to do is check in with myself, mm-hmm. notice what's happening in my own nervous system, stay connected to what I call the, our owl brain. Mm-hmm. And then ask myself, like, is this child's nervous system suggesting that they're feeling safe or not safe? Are they in a nervous system state of connection, which would be what would happen if they're feeling safe? Are they in a nervous system state of protection, which is what happens when their nervous system is feeling unsafe? That's typically a very easy question to answer, because even though it does feel confusing, like, what do you mean they're not safe? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Everything is safe here. And I get that that's confusing. But it actually can be really clear. It's like, this child is clearly not in a state of connection. They're not behaving in a way that's indicating they want to be in relationship with people. Certainly people aren't being drawn to be in relationship while they're acting this way. So that just tells me their nervous system is in a state of protection. They're not feeling safe. Now, again, I totally get that. It's like, okay, but you're not telling me what to do. You're right. I'm not yet. But that actually is something to do. Huge, huge. Yes. If we can just shift for one second, this child's not feeling safe. Mm
2: -hmm. Again,
1: Mm -hmm. that's not a pathway to, okay, so we'll just ignore and excuse this behavior. No, 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 no. But when I see this child's behavior for what it really is, first of all, it really does help me stay more regulated. If I can stay more regulated, I'm going to end up making much better choices about what to do next, like much more effective ones that are actually helpful to the and situation and instead of reactionary like, ones. Compassion, yeah. right, too. Yes.
0: If you recognize, okay, this child is in a state of protective mode, right? A child who's safe doesn't behave this way. Right. Then I have a lot more compassion for that child too. Oh my gosh, I don't want you to feel unsafe. I don't want you to feel... Not protected by me, by the classroom, by your peers, by your parents, by whomever I'm interacting with at that moment, it just grounds us, I think, in a different way.
1: It totally grounds us in a different way, which is good for the kids, but it's also extremely good for us.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like if I can spend a couple more moments of my day where I'm working with highly dysregulated kids, a couple more moments, I could find a way to. Be in a state of compassion mm-hmm. as opposed to in a state of, you know, like reactivity and anger and defensiveness or helplessness and hopelessness, which all make perfect sense for the setting. But if I can just like eke out a couple more moments of compassion every day for myself and for the kids for a situation for the impossible task we're being asked to do, literally we are being set up to do something that's not even possible the way that our systems are working. That is good for me. That's good for my nervous system. That is going to like increase my longevity in the field. It's going to decrease my burnout and all of the like extremely negative things that come from you know, the nervous system state of compassion, fatigue and burnout, how that impacts our health, our mental health, you know, just has huge impact on our quality of life. Mm-hmm. So, again, if for nothing else, like reframing kids' behaviors this way is is really good for us.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go to the second tenet that you're talking yeah. about and help us help me help people that are listening, bust a myth here, right? Yes. you said connection is a biological imperative. Yes. But I'm watching this kid. Yeah. Maybe as a parent, maybe as an educator, mm-hmm. maybe as a professional. And I'm going, I don't think they want to connect with me. Totally. Wait. no way are they acting exactly. like they want to be in a state of connection with me. What say yeah. you, Robin?
1: I say you're absolutely right. In this exact moment, yeah. the dominant part of their nervous system, the one that feels most important to express Mm
2: -hmm.
1: absolutely does not want connection with you or with themselves. Because I think that's a really important thing to notice that when our, when kids are behaving in this way, if we pause and was like, is that child connected to themselves? Like that they are in a moment of like mindful connection and presence with their own being. (laughs) the answer is no,
2: Hmm. absolutely
1: not. So, I 1 million percent would validate that. I mean, I've worked with kids, you know, that are giving the label of reactive attachment disorder. I know in my bones what it feels like to be with a child who it doesn't just not want to connect you. Like there's a sense of like this child wants to like hurt me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's That's a real feeling. And so when I say like connection is a biological imperative, I'm not again, I don't want to gaslight anybody. That's a real feeling, a real experience. And you're not wrong.
0: Okay. So we're not crazy. If we're watching, kid, observing, starting to be in this space with this child. And we're like, they do not want anything about connection with me. Okay.
1: Right. And, and there is always a part of the nervous system that is longing for connection. Mm -hmm. And we can go, there's so many places in the relational neuroscience field, we can go to see this like polyvagal theory, Steve Porteous's work, but Bex and Cohen's work and social baseline theory shows us this too, that connection is our default. It's our expectation. Mm -hmm. We expect connection. And when we don't find it, we're alarmed by it and we're constantly looking for it. And like physiologically, our body is doing better. Like it's operating more efficiently when we're connected. And I'm talking even about like physiological functions, like our stress response system and and all this kind of stuff. So if I look at that piece of science and know... Like, to be human is to preference connection to need i mean we actually we literally need connection for our brains to develop Lit- literally need connection for our brains to develop and little children need connection so their brains develop and they become adults who then can nurture connection in the next generation right like for the survival of our species connection is crucial i mean imperative mm-hmm. So that, again, just kind of keeps bringing me back to, well, if that's true, how are both true? Like, how do we make sense of of both of these things that we need connection to survive and something is going on with this child that is prompting them to, like, supersede that need for connection because they think that they need this way of protecting themselves to survive instead.
0: So one reason I love talking to you and learning from you um, is I have these ahas and you said something a minute ago that I want everybody to just hear again, which is you're not feeling connected to this kid. and This kid's not feeling connected to themselves. And in that moment, when you said that, Robin, I was like, Oh, I have so much more empathy. Again, I have more empathy for that child. They are not connected with them. Um, And then of course
1: they couldn't be connected to us.
0: Right, right. That's kids, that's adults, that's everyone. Yeah. Um, You also said something. All of you should be listening to Robin's podcast because you said something and I I can't even remember the episode or, or whenever it was, but it really helped me think about how I was thinking about connection. Um, and that is that sometimes kids behave exactly the opposite of what they want and need because their expectation is that you're not going to be able to meet that need anyway. Yeah. Um, will you say a little bit more about that? Because I think that's so crucial for parents and professionals to hear.
1: Yes. Do you want me to go into the science behind that? Like how much do you want me to dive into that?
0: Talk about it like on a really practical level. Yeah, what somebody might be seeing um, in terms of their child's unmet need is just right in their face.
1: Okay, so universal human needs. Okay, we're going to just very simplify this. To be safe, seen, soothed, and secure. That's language of Dr. Siegel and Bryson in their book, The Power of Showing Up. Okay, so human needs to be safe, seen, soothed, and secure. Now, without question, we can all bring to mind a child who was acting in a way that was inviting us to respond to them in very opposite kinds of ways, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: right? Some of this is just normal human, just normal human behavior, right? As we're figuring out life. Mm -hmm. But all some of it is a way that when we are expecting people to respond to us in negative, hurtful, unseen ways, and we would expect that because that's what's happened in the past mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Almost all of the way that our brain works is designed to anticipate what is about to happen next. So we give great preference to the past because that's the best way we could predict what is about to happen next. right? So if I'm predicting that the grown-ups that I'm with, are not going to be kind to me, not going to see my um, behavior as a sign of distress, but instead they're gonna see it as a sign of me being a bad kid and they're gonna punish me, right? Or they're gonna reject me or put me in time out, or holler at me or whatever. whatever again, very, I'm not shaming these adults. These are very normal human reactions. But if I'm a little child, and that's what I'm expecting the adult, especially adults who are in charge of me to do, I behave in ways that evoke that.
2: That
1: mm-hmm. is a very clear, proven human phenomenon that we behave in ways that evoke the behavior in others that we are usually unconsciously expecting. So if I'm a kid who's had a lot of Um, experiences with adults who are really dysregulated, really mean, really critical, really absent. I become a kid who sets the adult up to act that way. Mm -hmm. That is not blaming the child Mm -hmm. or the adults. It's just a natural human phenomenon. So like in the classroom, a child who is causing chaos is running around, is spitting, is yelling at you with 100% certainty is expecting that adult to respond back harshly, negatively with their own chaos, essentially. (laughs) And to think
0: they're a bad person, bad kid, came into the classroom to just ruin your day.
1: Yes. So what I really want to do is just normalize both sides. Like it's, it makes perfect sense that the child's doing that, but it also makes perfect sense that the adult is reacting that way. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want to be in the business of adults feeling bad. Like, Oh, I've judged the child so harshly and now I'm shaming myself. Yep. No, mm-hmm. that's not helpful either.
0: We're just going to think a little bit differently about this. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there, this is not just about kids. Humans are setting people up to behave the way that we're expecting while also deep inside, desperately hoping Mm -hmm. to be safe, seen, soothed, and secure to get that connection.
0: Oh my gosh. I want to just share a vulnerable moment with you, Robin, because the timeliness of when I heard you talking about this on whichever episode, lovely episode on your podcast, um, I was in a state with my own... Husband of like Mm -hmm. just being pissed at him. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I'm doing the thing that Robin's talking about right now. I'm behaving in a way that totally pushes him away. And yet I'm desperately wanting him to like come to me and hold me and love me and like think that I'm an amazing person. And I'm thinking to myself, if I'm a 47 year old woman and I've gone to school for 25 years and I've read all the books and my nervous system is doing this oh my gosh, this five-year-old, this seven-year-old, this 12-year-old who's only had a history of hurt and harm, or a teacher that is just completely overwhelmed and has all the expectations on her shoulders, or a pediatrician who's never understood behavior. Like, how do we expect them to get it? Like, if in this moment, I'm like, oh, I'm doing the thing. Yeah. And so I also, I love that you're saying this and I want to reiterate too, right? Just tons of patience with ourselves as we're learning this. And as we're trying to like, kind of see behaviors in another way and reframe things. Um, If I can shift for just a minute. um, I know that when we were talking before we hit record today, I said, you know, I want to talk about like three things helpers and healers can do differently. And I think I've caught a couple. I mean, you were talking about your, your three tenants, but the practical application, the first thing I heard is just check in with yourself first. You know, if you, you know reflect on whether or not you're in a regulated state and then um, look to see if the child's in a state of protection or connection. Um, what are a couple of other things that we would love it if people that are working in kids' lives just begin to reframe?
1: So I think this can bring us back to the other tenet I have about how regulated, connected kids who feel safe and know what to do are doing well. And so, you know, in a perfect world, and, and like this never happens, this this never happens to what I'm about to say. Um, we can pause and be like, so is this child dysregulated? Like, do they need help with regulation? Do they need um, help with connection? Are they experiencing connection as unsafe in this moment? Or are they feeling unsafe and they need support with felt safety? And then how do I offer those things? Now, again, very rarely are we like having this deep pondering moment of, hmm, does this child need regulation? (laughs) But what I have found in myself, but also with, you know, the hundreds and probably thousands of adults I've worked with, you know, whether they're parents or professionals, is that over time and over time of practicing like reframing behavior in this way we do get pretty good at quickly assessing is this a regulation issue a connection issue a safety issue or some version like some combination of all three Mm -hmm. there's some pretty universal things that help bring you know safety to the nervous system Mm And theoretically, there's some kind of universal things. One is connection. Now, when some folks have histories of significant attachment trauma, they've been really hurt in connection. Connection isn't as, you know, bringing of safety and regulation as it is for other folks. So we do have to get a little bit more nuanced in some circumstances. But generally speaking, connection invites safety. Mm-hmm. And connection can be as simple as um, i as the adult, have taken a breath and paused Mm -hmm. before reacting. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Because just energetically, that's sending a moment of connection that wouldn't have been sent, you know, if I had shifted into reactivity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like kids, this will sound probably so trite, but kids need way more movement than they're getting. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big, you know, we kind of all have our go-to things, like our go-to things that we suggest or try, like our preferred interventions. Mm -hmm. And mine tend to be really movement related. So I'm often offering things that are offering you know, the sensory experience of proprioception or some vestibular sense. I want to get their bodies moving. I want them to get a lot of impact into their bodies. I might, that means I might ask them to do five jumping jacks or quick, let's all have, you know, a push up contest. How many push ups can everybody do? Or, you know, make up some place to race to, like everybody run down there and touch the wall and then run back. And take three breaths and sit down, right? Because aspects of all of those sensory experiences bring regulation into the body and into the nervous system, which then brings yep. some safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so my best recommendation for folks is lean into like what your own intuition is. My, again, mine tends to be like movement. Based interventions. I need movement to feel okay. Right. So I'm
0: thinking about like, so if I'm a teacher and I literally want to run out of the classroom right now, maybe we all need to be running.
1: Right. Totally. No, seriously. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. really, really think. Yeah, I agree. And I agree. As a therapist, I'm sure you do this too, that sometimes I really am tuning into like, what does my body want to do right now? Yeah. And I will consider the possibility that in some kind of unconscious way, my client's communicating to me what they need. I, I could be wrong, be but you know, with the, whatever, let's just experiment and find out. So I, that's a perfect example. Like if you're having this sense of like, I wish I could run away from here, you know, like, <laughs> is there a way everybody could jump up and like run in place or, you know, run and touch something red on the wall and then run back to their classrooms? Or could you just take everybody outside really quick for a quick little recess break, right? Like tune into like, what is my body asking me to do? And then is there a way that I could, you know, safely offer this to the kids because our bodies are always seeking regulation. Mm -hmm. So the other thing too, is, is to look at what are the kids doing, right? Like if you're in circle time and kids are like doing somersaults, what I, and I, Again, I love to be upside down. So I have a real eagle eye for the kids who are clearly communicating to me. I need to be upside down. Right. So kids who are like doing gymnastics, like literal gymnastics, standing on their head, wiggling, they're like flipped upside down in their chair. That kid needs to be upside down. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how about in the back of the classroom, we have headstand mats? Yes. Or why can't the child be upside down during circle time? Can they have an exercise ball and you know, be doing like a a backbend mm-hmm. over the exercise ball so that they're supported mm-hmm. and could stay in that position, they're upside down. Their regulation's actually going to improve.
0: You know what I love about your work, Robin, as I'm listening to you, is just you honor so well where the teacher is, where the professional is, where the therapist, and where the kid is. And I think if we all meet in that space of like honoring our bodies honoring our brains honoring the child that we're working with um it really sets us up to to feel connected and and really the theme is like you know how do we connect with kids that are hard to connect with um any last thoughts on on that how to connect with kids that are hard to connect with
1: when i think back to the kids that i've worked with who don't just feel hard to connect with like they feel literally impossible to connect with. And that's really saying something. I love kids and I love, I really love the hardest ones. Mm -hmm. So when I'm face to face with a child that I'm like, Oh gosh, I wish the child was just frankly go away and never come back. Mm -hmm. What I try so hard to do is bring to mind this truth for me that feels just super grounding, which is connection is a biological imperative. Some part of the child does want connection. I don't know if I'm ever going to see that part, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but I believe it's there. And I can then get really curious about why they have to work this hard to cover up that need. But if I believe that need exists, what happens is I might get like one or two more seconds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bars real low, like one or two more seconds of offering that connection. Yeah. Oh, so good.
0: So good. Um, Okay. As we're wrapping up today, um, tell folks where people, where they can find you and we'll put all the good stuff in the show notes.
1: Super easy to find robingobel.com. And from there you can find my podcast, the <laughs> the book, Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, which again is, you know, for therapists and as well. And actually, I've had my first two um anonymous stranger reviews, like somebody who I have no idea who this person is. I didn't give them the book to read. They were both educators.
2: Mm, and
1: the book. It the book really isn't overtly for educators, but both of these two stranger reviews have been from educators that just had lovely things to say about the book and how it helps them think about the kids in their classrooms. So that was really great for me to feel like, okay, it has the capacity to help these other folks as well. Um, I do have a online virtual membership community, like you mentioned at the beginning, that's uh, for parents, really brings parents together to give them the connection and co-regulation that they need in order to be able to offer that to their kids. And then a professional training program for really anyone who works with parents. It's a really a parent professional training program, especially for these kids who are the hardest Mm -hmm. to connect with.
0: Well, and I'll just, um, give a shout out to the being with program that you run Robin, because I do work in this space of, you know, helping people who work in the lives of kids and families. And as you know, I come to you and I say, give me one of your students, because I know these people have been well-trained. So I just want to give a shout out to that. Um, thank you. So two parting questions. One, um, what's feeling magical and rewarding about your work right now?
1: Oh, I, I truly, this will sounds so sappy. But the first thought that came to my mind was like everything. Mm-hmm. Like I just do feel like I'm, I'm in a season like you and I talked about of working really hard. Mm-hmm. But uh, a season of working really hard in a way that I see how much it matters. Mm -hmm. Mostly probably to me, you know, like we all do the work that we need ourselves. Um, but it, everything is, just we're just at a really cool time in history where people's minds are open to being with kids and with themselves Mm -hmm. in this new way.
0: Well, I love it. And last question, um, when you're refueling your body with a sweet treat or a snack, what's your indulgence?
1: Oh, salty. (laughs) So chips and salsa is my first Mm. thought or popcorn.
0: Love it. Love it. Mm. Um, Robin Goebel, thank you so much for being a great friend and colleague and for the work that you put out into this world. You create a space that is full of empathy and compassion for people doing this work and for the kids whose lives they impact. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for all of that.
1: Mm. Thank you, Amy. And same for your friendship and for our professional relationship and for all the super important work you're doing in the world and how much it matters for kids and families.
0: Well, that's it friends. If you like what you're hearing here, please download my free resource called 10 guiding principles to nurture connection and help children and families thrive. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you and keep sharing yours because your humanity will heal others. Bye for now.